Yeah, I think that's probably the most recognizable TV theme song, The Addams Family. According to Rolling Stone magazine, their ranking published in November, they put this as the number one TV theme song of all time. Well, we're moving on. Well, can't argue with that. Uh, but as we've been uh, finding out through the afternoon, people have really strong feelings and really strong memories associated with TV theme songs. And it's really interesting why it is that uh, some really stand the test of time, sometimes even more so than the show itself. Well, our next guest has written a book. It's a fascinating and in-depth look at the history and significance of TV theme songs. It's a book that's a product of 35 years of research and over 450 interviews. The book is called Music for Primetime, History of American Television Themes and Scoring. Uh, the author, John Burlingame, also teaches film scoring at the University of Southern California and joins us on the line here this afternoon. John, so great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. And thank you so much for having me, Rob. It's interesting because it seems to me when we think of TV music, maybe it doesn't have the same level of prestige as, as film and perhaps to some extent is, is underappreciated. Was that part of your motivation in writing this book? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, from the time I was a kid, I always loved TV themes, and maybe because I was sort of musically inclined and sang in the church choir and that sort of thing. And then when I when I went to college and and even after, I would read reviews of both films and and television programs, and always marveled at the fact that nobody ever mentioned the music, which I'd felt was such an important component of the storytelling, providing the kind of emotional. Uh, backdrop, if you will, that that so many of these shows had. Really, it's res the music is responsible for so much, um, and themes, of course, are the central um, the central um, point of so many of those great tunes. The theme is where it all begins, and so when I began to do. Uh, entertainment journalism in the 1980s, I made every excuse possible to interview all of my favorite composers mm -hmm. and discovered fairly quickly that I was the only one <laughs> doing it. So over all these years, having spoken with all these composers and songwriters, it just felt like it was the right time to compile it all into a sort of grand scale appreciation book. I mean, how far back do TV themes go? Is this go as far back as really television itself or, you know, the creation of episodic television? Were, were there always theme songs? Yes, pretty much, pretty much so. Really, you know, the early history of television is very largely um, derived from what was going on in radio of the 1930s and 40s. And when you, if you think about the Lone Ranger, um, you know, people from the baby boom generation tend to remember Clayton Moore in the television show. Um, but in fact, the Lone Ranger on TV was really just an adaptation of what they had been doing for, you know, decades in radio. So when the William Tell Overture was uh, played for the television theme, it was really, it was literally the same recording that they'd been using on radio for years beforehand. So yes, um, there was, uh, from the beginning, really, of the history of television, there was always that sort of one-minute main title imagery accompanied by a uh, hopefully memorable theme. Mm -hmm. And you think of some of the famous TV theme songs over the years, and, and some are really direct. They sort of explain the premise or the characters, like a direct reference to the show. Others seem almost more about setting a certain kind of tone for the show. What, what purpose does the theme song serve? 
Well, I think you've nailed it, really, in, in, in both senses. The instrumental themes tended to set a mood, uh, perhaps uh, give us some musical idea of where we are or what we're about to experience, whereas the songs very often, particularly from the 1960s, if you think about the Beverly Hillbillies or Gilligan's yeah. Island, they really tell the backstory. Uh, and in the case of Gilligan's Island, the show itself wouldn't have existed had the producer not convinced CBS executives that, that they could explain the backstory <laughs> and why these seven stranded castaways were on that Pacific island uh, in a one-minute song. And having been thus convinced, they gave him the money to shoot the pilot. <laughs> And, of course, that song is still instantly recognizable today. I mean, you know, part of it is the legacy of these shows and shows we remember fondly. But these theme songs, you know, they, they really, you know, they enhance the show. The show enhances the, the song maybe to some extent. Uh, why is it that, that some have such staying power? You know, I, I'm not sure that that's, uh, to even, even so many years later, a totally answerable question. Because some of them are simply just so catchy in and of yeah. themselves, musically. If you consider the fact that The Addams Family was actually only on for two seasons in the mid-1960s, wow, yeah. and yet that tune oh, yeah. somehow stayed with us for decades, so that when Paramount decided to make a big-screen movie of The Addams Family in the 1990s, the first thing they thought of was, we've got to use the theme. Everyone knows the theme. More people know the theme than actually remember the show. Yeah. So that's one example. But, you know, I, I, if, if the other thing I think perhaps is, is notable is that so many of the composers and songwriters who worked in TV, particularly in the 1950s, 60s, and into the 70s, were actually working composers from the film and Tin Pan Alley uh, era and place. So that these were really professional guys who knew how to write a tune, could do it quickly, and could and could convey a mood or an idea or or a concept in sixty seconds or less. And how did they feel about the work? Did, did they view TV as as you know beneath film, or maybe to some extent even beneath them? Or was this work they were proud of? That's another really interesting question. I I would say that having interviewed so many of these guys over the years. Many of them had come from movies and weren't getting movie work anymore. That was particularly true of somebody like Earl Hagen, who wrote the Andy Griffith Show theme, the Dick Van Dyke Show theme, That Girl, I Spy, and more. Um, he had been working in movies back in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And when he left 20th Century Fox in the early 1950s, he went over to television and started to sort of practice his craft there. Whether or not it was just he, he needed the work or whether he, you know, enjoyed the challenge of a new medium, I'm not sure I can say to this day. Um, but it, it certainly was true that some of these guys um, needed a job. You know, that was certainly true for Peter Gunn, you know. Henry Mancini was out of work in 1958. And when he happened to run into Blake Edwards on the studio lot, and Blake said, well, I'm making this new show called Peter Gunn, Mancini had a family, and, and he was out of work. And he said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And Peter Gunn, you know, goes on to huge success and winds up winning a Grammy for Record of the Year. At what point did we start to see these theme songs almost become like hit songs, right? Theme songs that ended up on, on the Billboard charts, uh, songs that almost kind of took on a life of their own. Was there a, a, an era where that became a, a thing? It's always been hit or miss, Rob. I think that... Um, 
you know, I just mentioned Peter Gunn, for example. That was a huge hit and was was number one on the Billboard charts for, uh, gee, a couple of months, I think, in 1959, uh, and on the charts for, you know, three or four years, all told. Um, so once in a while, one will hit. Um, and, for example, um, when you think about Hawaii Five-0, that that became a hit for the ventures in uh, 68 69 right after the show went on the air in fact they recorded the tune even before the show went on the air oh, wow. so um you know it it won- and of course the theme for friends in 1994 the show was hugely popular from day 1 on NBC and so when they put on uh, put it out on an album in in the following year in 1995 it too became a hit uh and and so it a lot of it depended on the success of the show itself, uh, and to a certain degree, the quality of the music. I mean, that Ventures re- recording uh, was, you know, a, a real hard-hitting uh, instrumental in that rock and roll era. It's interesting you mentioned Friends. I mean, it seems like by the time we get to the 90s, maybe TV theme songs are, are falling out of fashion. I think one executive described them as an antiquated practice. Uh, you know, <laughs> times of a premium. The audience has a short attention span. All, all of these considerations. Yeah, it, it is certainly true. Uh, by the particularly, there was genuine fear on the part of network executives in the 1990s because by that time, broadcast television uh, was you know facing the challenges of cable at that point, and there were many many more uh, choices for viewers at home. So they were they were terrified of people switching the channel, finding any excuse to turn away from uh, compelling content. And so network executives at that point felt, well, let's get rid of a main title and stop giving people an excuse to go over to the other channel. Um, and, and, and not everyone agreed with that, uh, I, I found at the time. But uh, there was enough panic uh, on the part of network executives that they started to trim those back. Mm-hmm. I, I remember talking, in fact, I talk about this in the book, to the composer of Castle, which was an ABC hour-long drama of a few seasons back, and he was given seven seconds to sort of create the right mood for the show. Well, can you even do that in seven (laughs) seconds? You know, so network television still, I think, would like to sort of think it doesn't exist, but cable and streaming, where people actually pay for the service and there's less panic about people switching away, uh, has allowed the television theme to continue to blossom. Yeah, I mean, I think of The Sopranos, which came along in, in the late 90s, that, that one stands out. Even more recently, you know, shows like Game of Thrones or even Stranger Things, there, there really seems to be an emphasis on, you know, and having that and, and really putting, you know, effort into to it as well. That's exactly right. I mean, I think that, you know, the Game of Thrones producers were very smart, I think, about uh, about opening with a main title and a compelling theme. Think about Succession, for example. I mean, yeah. I think that's another recent example uh, of, of, a, of a main title theme that becomes a kind of earworm that you not only will remember, but, you know, f- uh, you find it almost a welcoming element of the show as we now return to that new season. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to hear it again, you know. Um, I, I think that astute filmmakers who are shifting into the television realm, many of them for the first time, uh, revere the concept of music as a storytelling tool. And I think that, you know, the smart ones utilize it in, in smart ways and collaborate with their composers to come up with stuff that's fresh and original. 
Well, that's an interesting point because that that seems to be consistent over the decades in film where having a score, having a theme has always been central. And maybe it always hasn't been in television, but as you see, you know, directors, producers, composers working in both worlds, how, how does that change that perspective? Well, I think that, I think that the what's always been true in films is now also true in television, which is the best filmmakers, the most dramatically astute filmmakers, understand the value of music, not just as a theme, but for the the entire score and what it can accomplish, what it can what it can bring. You know, uh, the right music can. Uh, set a tone, um, can tell us what time and place we're in, uh, and most importantly, provide needed emotion for a scene or or even over a main title. And I think that, you know, those kinds of smart filmmakers find equally dramatically astute composers to help help them achieve their goals and their vision. I mean, you know, when you think about Michael Mann and, and, and uh, Miami Vice in 1984, oh, yeah. Yeah. he was very smart uh, to reach out to Jan Hammer, who was very cutting edge at the time with his synthesizers, to come up with a sound that we had never heard before in television. Um, and that became an integral part uh, of, the, of the color and the mood of that series in the mid-1980s. I'm sure once I put it to the audience and, you know, say, say, you know, which are your favorite TV theme songs, I'm sure that'll get people going. But I mean, for you, who's, uh, you know, someone who, who studies this and, and works in this realm, which ones stand out to you, either your own personal favorites or what do you think stand out just just quality wise? Uh, do, do you have your favorites? Probably one or two hundred of them. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, one of the joys of working on this book was immersing myself in that music and that wonderful music. You know, I think I think we're all kind of nostalgic for what we grew up with. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so for me, growing up in the 1960s, I have a lot of favorites from that era. I mean, we've already talked about some of them, you know, Peter Gunn and Hawaii Five-O and... Uh, I would certainly sing a lot Lalo Schifrin's Mission Impossible theme, which has itself gained new life through the Mission Impossible movies uh, of the last, you know, 20 or 25 years. Um, that's, a, that's, that's special to me, too. Yeah, it's funny, and I think of, you know, the, the famous ones over the years, and a lot of them are, you know, same thing in, in shows we remember. But, you know, there's some, like, I Dream of Genie. I never really watched that show. That is a delightful, a delightful song, uh, one that, that even today is is recognizable. So it is funny how some of these, these songs uh, do almost, in a way, kind of outlive the shows, right? It's absolutely true. And, and that's one of the things that's magic about music, um, because it's a kind of, it's almost a kind of alchemy, in a way, uh, the idea of, of a great tune set against arresting or compelling imagery, yeah. and and that forms a kind of memory for us. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be Gilligan's Island. It can be something light and fluffy, like I Dream of Jeannie. You know, as you point out, it can be it can be something like the you know the Five O theme or the X Files theme, for example, is not so much creepy oh, yeah. as it is mysterious and and kind of otherworldly, and setting that tone once again for what we're about to be immersed in. Fascinating stuff. The book is called Music for Prime Time, A History of American Television Themes and Scoring. John Burlingame, thanks again for joining us here today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you, Rob. There you go. John Burlingame, as mentioned, he teaches film scoring at the University of Southern California, and his book is called Music for Prime Time. Interesting look at the history of TV theme songs. 
So what is it about some of these songs that resonate with us, you know, in, in some cases, you know, years or decades after the fact? And what stand out to you as kind of the cream of the crop? Welcome back. As kind of a segue from talking about iconic uh, TV theme songs and TV shows, Game of Thrones uh, certainly made uh, this creature iconic, the dire wolf as it's known. Uh, from the Ice Age, uh, an extinct predator, and uh, one that was first discovered back in the 1850s, I believe. Now, a lot of research has been done to try to better understand uh, this this species. A lot of fossils were found, for example, uh, around Los Angeles, the La Brea tar pits. But for the first time, we've got some conclusive evidence that the dire wolf roamed these parts was found, in fact, in what is now Canada. This is a specimen that was found near Medicine Hat. It was actually identified decades ago, but it took the use of new technology to finally pinpoint that, yes, indeed, this was a dire wolf. So joining us to talk about this new research, which has just been published, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, the uh, lead author uh, of this uh, published report, evolutionary biologist Ashley Reynolds. Uh, PhD candidate, University of Toronto and Royal Ontario Museum. Ashley, congratulations on this, first of all, and uh, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's awesome to be here. What do we need to know about the dire wolf? I mean, we're familiar with wolves. We still, of course, have wolves with us today. What was different and unique about the dire wolf? Well, the dire wolf was very similar in appearance to the wolves that we're familiar with today, but it was kind of like a supercharged big and bulky version of the gray wolves that that we see in Canada nowadays. So the dire wolf was, was huge. It was about the size of a St. Bernard. And so what do we know about its, its habitat, uh, about the animal itself? Well, we, we're, we're now starting to find out that the dire wolf, like a lot of large carnivores, could really live in a number of different environments. And it was found pretty much across the continent of North America, basically everywhere where there wasn't giant ice sheets, which, of course, there were at that time covering most of Canada. And it turns out that it, you know, when, when there was not tons of ice covering Alberta, the dire wolf was found in Alberta as well. Which we now know. So let's talk yeah. about this this specimen. This was something that was found a number of years ago, as I understand. So what was it that was found? And give us a bit more of the history on this. Yeah, so it's a, uh, a dentary, which is a lower jawbone. Uh, and it was found in 1969 by a crew that was working in the Medicine Hat area uh, from the University of Toronto and the Geological Survey of Canada. And basically what was found was this lower jawbone, like I said, but it was very crushed, um, as I'm sure your listeners can understand. When something's buried under tons of rock for thousands of years, sometimes it comes out a little worse for wear. And uh, this bone was uh, had a lot of cracks in it. It had pieces that were kind of raised and pieces that were depressed. And it took a lot of preparation to make it look... Uh, albeit a, a little bit scrappy still, it, it looks, you know, like a jawbone. So what did it take then to, to determine what this was? There is a couple things that we did. The first thing that we did was compare it to all of the, uh, the potential 
candidates for what it could be. And in this case, it was pretty clear that it was from a large dog-like animal. And that meant that it was either a gray wolf or a dire wolf. So we compared it with specimens that we have at the Royal Ontario Museum, as well as what other researchers have said distinguishes those two species. Unfortunately for us, this came from a very old individual. And when mammals get old, their teeth wear down. And when teeth wear down, they can get rid of some of the characters that we would use to tell other, otherwise very similar looking species like the gray wolf or the dire wolf apart. What we did is we turned to a technique called geometric morphometrics. And basically what that does is it takes a whole bunch of gray wolves, a whole bunch of dire wolves, and it uses mathematics to describe the shape of their lower jawbone. And when we have, you know, the general shape of a gray wolf and the general shape of a dire wolf, we can then take the unknown specimen, which is the, the medicine hat specimen in this case, and get a program to basically tell us which does it look more like. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it, it vastly looks more like a dire wolf than it looks like a gray wolf. And the significance of this, because this is the northernmost uh, finding of, of a dire wolf specimen, so it's, it's kind of an, a new discovery in that sense as we learn about this, this creature. And I guess in turn, that also tells us about, you know, what was happening in, in Canada, what's now Canada, uh, during this part of the Ice Age. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, of course, this is just exciting to know that, you know, dire wolves lived in in our country or what would become our country but what's even more interesting to me is is what knowing what lived in canada and when can start to tell us about how things changed uh over the last you know hundred thousand years uh, of course we like to think of this time as the ice age but what was happening was that the climate was actually changing quite a lot. So there are time periods where the climate was a lot colder and there are time periods where it was warmer, albeit maybe not as warm as it is today. So as these climate changes were happening and then as humans started to migrate into North America, what areas like this where we get a sequence of fossils from multiple different time periods, they can start to tell us how ecosystems were responding to these changes. I would imagine not just with dire wolves, but other creatures of, of that era, there's there's a lot more probably waiting to be discovered. Absolutely, there is. Um, you know, we, we had a very different looking ecosystem way back thousands of years ago than we do today. And, you know, we can start to figure out why we lost, you know, some of these big predators like dire wolves or even saber-toothed cats, as well as the big herbivores that we're missing. So we used to have horses and camels and mammoths and mastodons in, in Canada. And the question is, why did they go extinct? And hopefully some of these findings can help us learn more about that. Right, so this area in particular, so this was near Medicine Had. Was there anything significant about this particular area? Well, what's really cool about this area is, like I said, it, it has um, multiple what we call fossiliferous layers. So it's basically, if you if you were to look at a cliff, you can see there's there's multiple layers of, of different sediments throughout the cliff. And 
going from you know the bottom to the top of the cliff you'll find multiple layers that have bones in them and those represent different time periods so when we're looking at these different time periods we actually do see some changes in the composition of the animals one of the things that we see is that horses become more common uh, and camels become less common throughout time so this can start to tell us you know what things were changing and then if we start to look deeper into you know maybe some more indicators about the climate we can see what they were responding to and what what's become by the way where is this specimen now the specimen is at the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, so it's there in the vertebrate paleontology collection. Oh, yeah. And are you a Game of Thrones fan, by the way? <laughs> I am, yes. <laughs> I'm eagerly awaiting uh, George R. R. Martin's next installment, which, you know, we've been waiting for for yes, many indeed. years. <laughs> That's fasc- fascinating. Congratulations on, on this, Ashley, and uh, thanks again for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you for having me. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Ashley Reynolds, uh, lead author on this published research PhD candidate at the University of Toronto and Royal Ontario Museum, which is where this uh, jawbone sits. So a significant finding because no dire wolf had been found before this far north. So it sort of shifts the understanding of not just this creature, the species, uh, but also, as she mentions, just what was happening in, in this part of the world at that time. So it was very much the Ice Age, but you did have this significant shift. So it's not as though, you know, this wolf was living on a frozen wasteland. Although, you know, much of these parts were indeed covered in ice in, in stretches back then. It's an interesting moment for the Canadian economy. We saw the latest jobless numbers today, which show that we are still at basically record low unemployment. But at the same time, we've seen some slowing GDP numbers and inflation. Inflation remains a big concern and one we should still be worried about, even if things do seem to be at least starting to trend in the right direction. There's a new report out today from the Fraser Institute making the argument, though, that current government fiscal policy is undermining the fight against inflation. We just had a federal budget come down, still a lot of money that this federal government is spending And our next guest says that spending, that fiscal policy, is undermining the Bank of Canada, is contributing to inflation. Uh, Joining us uh, for more is Philip Cross. He's a former chief uh, economic analyst at Statistics Canada and is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, fraserinstitute.org. Philip, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back, Rob. I guess what's important to note here, too, first of all, is that, you know, we're not just talking about past tense in terms of federal spending that might have had inflationary pressure. I mean, we're we're still talking about present day current fiscal policy, aren't we? Oh, very much so. I mean, the the budget presented last week was just uh, show that, uh, you know, this government simply can't break that big spending habit. Um, You know, there was talk they, they floated some trial balloons ahead of the budget that there'd be some nod towards fiscal restraint but uh it, it it's just not there in the numbers and instead they're adopting a number of new spending programs and the, the deficits are projected to be higher than they were talking about last year and they're expected to remain about 40 billion for three straight years do you get the sense i mean you know you mentioned the 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 finance minister has, has talked about restraint whether that's actually there or not but does that signal i mean a recognition on their part are they at least acknowledging that spending can have inflationary pressure oh no i don't think they've ever acknowledged that in fact just the opposite they they justify their spending 
the same way Joe Biden does in the U.S. He says, well, uh, in fact, these uh, programs are designed to uh, you know, either cushion inflation or make investments that will break down bottlenecks and reduce inflation, uh, all of which is nonsense. Of course, we're dealing with an economy, uh, as the central bank and the Bank of Canada will tell you, that is operating beyond its capacity limits. And when the demand exceeds supply, anything that fuels demand is going to increase inflationary pressures. And right. that's what budget deficits are doing. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, we're talking about supply and demand, uh, supply shortages, but, you know, the, the demand as well, too many dollars chasing too few goods, essentially. So explain what that connection is, how federal spending can help cause or at least fuel inflation. Well, there's a direct impact of more as it's spending, particularly in an economy at full employment. I mean, we had another whiz-bang employment report from Citizens Canada this morning. I mean, there's just no sign that this economy is slowing down despite all the talk about recession fears out there. Just the opposite. The economy continues to overheat. Um, so in, in that situation, when you have an overheating economy, you don't want to be increasing demand and, and deficit spending because that just adds fuel to the fire. But there's also the matter of expectations that if the government is continuing to uh, to spend more and, and finance it with deficits, it fuels inflationary expectations of people. People go, okay, these guys aren't serious about inflation, therefore I'm going to demand more for my wages. Uh, and, and that just fuels a, a wage price spiral, which the Bank of Canada is, is desperately trying to avoid. What do we make of the indications, though, that uh, inflation is, is starting to slow or that maybe some of these monetary policy steps are, are, are getting us closer to where we want to be? Well, that's the low-hanging fruit. I mean, yes, it's encouraging that headline inflation has come down, but it's mostly in the areas where it's relatively easy to uh, for central bankers to bring uh, prices down. Uh, oil prices have backed off from their highs. The housing market has certainly begun to correct in Canada. The problem is now, though, we're getting down to what's called core inflation. In particular, we're at the point now where wage increases for the last two months have been above price increases. So the the number one upward pressure on prices these days is is wages, particularly in the services sector. So uh, getting getting inflation down from its peak of of over 8% to to under 6% was the easy part. Getting it down to 4% and 3% and then 2%, that's going to be the hard part. So we sort of got different stages here that we can look at. I mean, you, you know, you talk in the paper about pre-pandemic spending, and it's important to know kind of where we started from going into the pandemic. Uh, an immense amount of money spent sort of in the throes of the early stages of, of the pandemic, you know, not knowing what we were dealing with. And, and here we are now post-pandemic, and you alluded to it at the beginning, that we're, we're still dealing with inflationary kind of fiscal policy. But what, what has had the biggest impact in all of this? Well, the biggest impact is not pandemic-related spending. I mean, you know, that has wound down the, the CERB and SEBA and all these programs that yeah. were rolled out to provide temporary support. They've all expired now. And yet program spending in, in, by the federal government is 30% above where it was before the pandemic. So what's happened is we've had a, a very large increase in uh, spending unrelated to the pandemic. Everything from civil service, uh, the growth of civil service, which has been enormous through the pandemic to uh, bringing in new programs uh, for, um, you know, we had new transfers to the provinces for health care announced just before the budget, a new pharmacare program, the beginnings of a new dental program. 
so, you know, we, we continue to roll out new programs on, on a permanent basis. Um, you know, the pandemic spending was temporary and they did lapse. The problem is all these new programs, they're permanent spending. Right. There's no end date on them. Right. It, it, you know, back to the question of the government, to what extent it's willing to acknowledge this, it does seem as though we've essentially decided here that when it comes to inflation, that's a monetary policy, almost like they have nothing to do with it, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's very, instead of reading the budget, I would encourage your listeners to, to take a glance at Bill Morneau's book. I mean, that was very revealing. If you want to know how budgets are made and what's gone wrong with budgets under this government, read his book. It's not that long. It's uh, Where to From Here is its title. And he basically describes how, uh, you know, every spending proposal, every proposal for a fiscal target to try to anchor spending so he could, so the finance minister could go to ministers and say, no, we have this fiscal uh, target, was vetoed by the prime minister's office. The prime minister's office would constantly interfere and say, oh, give them just a little bit more money and make them go away. Uh, they arbitrarily came up with uh, higher spending uh, proposals for things like CERB and pandemic support than even the Department of Finance's highest projection. So it's really, you know, this is uh, the Department of Finance and, and the finance minister isn't exercising a lot of control of this. This is coming straight from the prime minister's office, and it's strictly for political, short-term political gain. There's no consideration about the long-term fiscal effects of these decisions. Well, let's talk about what that needs to look like. You know, you make the argument in in your piece that fiscal and monetary policy needs to align. So what does that look like? Well, what it means is that they have to be uh, rowing in the same direction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Put another way, you know, in the current situation, we've got monetary policy hitting the brakes to slow the economy down and rein in inflation. And fiscal policy is hitting the accelerator and trying to speed the economy up. Well, that's going to lead to instability, uh, and you're likely to go off the road at the end of the day. With, with uh, we we want fiscal and monetary policy to be going in the same direction. And any and when you look back, any serious attempt at reining in inflation, whether it was in the early 1980s or the early 1990s, both monetary and fiscal policy acted together. Uh, there's a growing amount of literature now that says. You know, we, we, as a society, we've come to believe that monetary policy is the only game in town, is the only thing that counts for inflation. And the track record says, no, actually, fiscal policy has an important role to play in all this, too. Um, so if we rely only on, on monetary policy to slow inflation, we're going to end up with interest rates going much higher. And that's just going to create higher government deficits because of all the debt issue. And they're going to be paying higher interest rates on all that debt. And you you get yourself into a situation that's called fiscal stagnation, and obviously that's something you want to avoid. Yeah, kind of the worst of both worlds. So that would mean clearly deeper spending cuts. Uh, what, what would you like to see from the federal government, both on the spending side and, I mean, is there anything to do or to touch on, on the tax side? I think all the evidence is is that when you're engaged in deficit reduction, you really want to rely on spending cuts. Um that, for example, when Canada had a fiscal crisis in the mid-90s, we got 80% of it was solved through spending cuts. There were some token tax increases. Right. But tax increases are very bad for economic growth, so you don't want to be over-reliant on those. And frankly, too, when you look back at the record of this government, as I say, read Bill Morneau's book. He says that um, 
you know, this government it just threw money out the window. Uh, if they can't find waste and things to cut back in that spending, they're not even trying. Uh, there's lots, to, especially for this government and, frankly, for any government to, to uh, find places to cut back on wasteful spending. Well, yeah, I know, too. I mean, does, to what extent does that extend to the provinces? How much might uh, provincial fiscal policy be, be a part of the problem here, too? Yeah, it's certainly contributed to it. I mean, uh, especially here in central Canada. I mean, we had uh, in the run-up to elections in Ontario and Quebec, Ontario and Quebec sent out $500 checks to everybody. Um, we've had rollbacks on gasoline taxes and all under the same mm-hmm. excuse as the federal government of, well, we have to cushion the impact of inflation on. But in fact, these very actions only fuel inflation. Uh, we'd be better off not mailing checks to people and simply let inflation fall back quickly. Um, but, you know, governments can't resist uh, scratching that itch. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, much more, uh, as mentioned, FraserInstitute.org. Philip Cross, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Rob. There you go. That's uh, Philip Cross, former chief uh, economic analyst at Statistics Canada, senior fellow with the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. So making the argument that current fiscal policy is contributing to inflation. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.